Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I am Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And in our New York studio, we have our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And also on the line, we have Joanna Robinson, our staff writer, senior staff writer. Hello. Apologies for trying to diminish your title. Especially because we have so much TV stuff to talk about and you are our envoy to the TV world. We have the last of our Emmys for Your Consideration series of interviews. Uh, We'll talk about a little bit later, but uh, Richard talked to David Harbour, the star of Stranger Things, and I talked to Zach Woods, one of the many stars of Silicon Valley, and uh, both of those were really fun conversations. But before we really dive into TV at all, there's kind of some crazy news in the film world that it felt like we had to dive into. Uh, I'm not sure that the uh, Han Solo spinoff movie ever would have really been an Oscar contender, uh, and thus in the purview of the show, but uh, it's crazy news that Phil Lord and Chris Miller were fired by Lucasfilm as their directors of this movie with apparently three weeks left to go in shooting. This news broke last night. There's already some really fascinating, like, unsourced stories from the set about what happened and how they maybe clashed with Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan. Uh, Joanna, maybe starting with you, since you wrote about it last night, uh, how crazy is this in, like, the annals of directors getting fired from movies? Absolutely insane because there's like three weeks left of production uh, or that's what was scheduled left of production. Who knows how many weeks they're going to do now. But, you know, one of our colleagues, Johanna Desto, was trying to think this morning of like other big examples. And I'm glad, Katie, that you chimed in with this is unprecedented because last night I was thinking this is unprecedented. Like the, the timing of it is unprecedented. And you know, as far as the rumors go, the rumor is that that on Rogue One, a similar thing happened that that Kathy Kennedy and Lucasfilm wanted to do a bunch of reshoots. And Gareth Edwards, the director on that film, was more willing to play ball and just say, like, yes, this is still my vision. And that uh, Lord and Miller were, were not willing to go that route. And so the old creative differences reason got got trotted out. So here we are. Yeah, and what they said in their statement was something like, we're not fans of the cliche creative differences, but it, for once it's actually true. And I mean, it does seem like that that phrase exists for something like this, where it's like, Studio One in one movie, they wanted a different movie and like couldn't make it work. I think it's also surprising because Phil Lord and Christopher Miller are are really like beloved. You know, they made this Lego movie, which everyone sort of was really charmed by. And like, they just seem to have had such good, you know, will um, surrounding them in, in, in Hollywood. And so for this to happen in this kind of dramatic fashion is really surprising. And I'm also wondering, like, what does this mean? Like, will they get credit? Like, how does that work? Did you look into this when you wrote the article, Joanna? Because I, as I understand, like nobody totally knows. There is no concrete answer, I think, yet. And in terms of like DJ roles and stuff like that, like I, I feel like I, I think it depends how much they shoot from here is what I would guess. Yeah. Do you know, like if they if if they hire, you know, there's a couple names in the mix to replace them, including weirdly Ron Howard, Joe Johnston, who did the first Captain America and Lawrence Kasdan, who's a writer on this project and also apparently not a fan of Lauren Miller are all, you know, in the running, if they pick up the Han Solo movie and shoot just a ton more footage and most of that footage is what, you know, winds up in the movie, then I could see Lord and Miller not getting a credit on it, you know, which is crazy or like at least not a directorial credit, you know. I think it'd be fascinating if like they congratulately have to get credit for DGA rules and won't take it. And then somehow it's Han Solo and Alan Smithy film like that would be (laughs) so weird. That would be weird. I'm also wondering, like, in a, in a bigger sense, like, should we be nervous about Star Wars? Because this, you know, so this happens and it's pretty dramatic and it would suggest that, like, things are a little bit off the rails uh, with this particular project. But also, you know, we have the Book of Henry, Colin Trevorrow's sort of interim project between Jurassic World and the ninth main saga Star Wars movie that he'll be directing. And I, th- I think he co-wrote the screenplay. 
and that book of henry was a complete catastrophe and so like people are sort of not trusting him with this huge ip now um not that they really were before that but you know it just feels like suddenly this this franchise that seemed bulletproof is now looking a little bit more rickety than it did as much as i might sort of disagree with what kathy kennedy did with rogue one just on a principle of like let a creative be creative if you're gonna hire gareth edwards let gareth edwards make a gareth edwards film that is my philosophy, but there's no denying that Rogue One was hugely successful. I didn't particularly love it, but like audiences loved it. Critics loved it. It made over a billion dollars worldwide. So like her instincts there to sort of rein it in and make it creatively more a Star Wars film was lucrative in the end for the company. And so I think what it means is the same thing that we've been talking about for years with Marvel, which is it means trouble for any director who thinks that they're going to do something particularly like creatively innovative with star Wars. But in terms of churning out successful, well-liked blockbusters, I don't know that this is necessarily a problem, but what's so funny to me is that the star Wars anthology series, which includes rogue one, this Han Solo movie and uh, the, the Boba Fett anthology series that Josh Trank was hired to do all of those directors Lord Miller, Gareth Edwards, and Josh Trank have like sort of come to creative blows with Kathy Kennedy and Lucasfilm. And those films were originally pitched as like the sort of jazz version of Star Wars, if that makes any sense. Like the the main Skywalker saga is going to be very Star Wars. And these other films is where we're going to experiment. But um, I feel like there's too much money on the line and it looks just it really looks like they're unwilling to experiment in that in that way. I'm, my like generous reading of this and like also I think uh, Kathy Kennedy has earned a lot of trust and like has made a lot of good decisions so far. So there's uh, there's definitely a feeling of like as much as I like Lord Miller, like she probably had good reason to make the choice she did. And I think it's probably really hard to make a different kind of Star Wars movie. I think figuring out what a Star Wars movie is and isn't and how you can spin that off is a real challenge and probably a lot harder than uh, most people thought it was going to be. Because Rogue One, even if it's, you know, it's a heist movie and has all these new characters, like still feels a lot like a Star Wars movie. And I mean, maybe we weren't ready for like a Star Wars comedy with Han Solo. Like does Star Wars have to exist in its current form for like 20 more years before we can like properly start getting spinoffs? It's a, it's a hard question to answer, especially when there's, you know, like billions of dollars on the line, literally. Yeah. Well, do we have at least uh, continued faith in episode eight, which uh, by like all evidence seems to be in pretty great shape? Yeah, I heard rumors that it's that it's they're really happy with it. Yeah, I mean, Mike Sampson, who is like a very trusted person who used to be um, editor at Screen Crush and now works at the Alamo Drafthouse, he tweeted out like a bunch of like, he, apparently he has a wealth of insider knowledge and tweeted out a bunch of like very reassuring things, at least about the Ryan Johnson edit. And like Ryan Johnson, who is a very creatively like experimental director, allegedly Kathy Kennedy and Lucasfilm are very pleased with what he's done with episode eight. So that gives me... New hope, I guess. Aha! Renewed hope. Well, so back to the world of television where uh, Emmy voting continues. And there's also already some awards to talk about, or at least nominations, because the uh, Television Critics Association, am I getting the name right? Joanna, you're a, you're a newly minted member of the TCA. But did, so did you get to vote on these awards? Yes, I voted last night. Woo. Uh, so yeah, the nominations for the TCA awards have come out and it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting and wide ranging collection of a lot of maybe the stuff that we love on t- television that might not necessarily be, uh, in the running for Emmys. So Joanna, what were some of your favorite nominees of this bunch? 
I liked, there's a couple fun categories to talk about. Like there's outstanding achievement in youth programming, which is such a weird category because there's some things you would expect to see in there, like Doc McStuffins or, you know, Sesame Street over on HBO. But then also the ABC series Speechless is in there. And I really like couldn't tell you why it's in there. But I am delighted to see it there because I think it's a fantastic family sitcom. And um, so that, you know, that has some good kids on it. So I guess why not put it in there? Not just for youths. Not just for youths. You know, there's there's a lot of, I don't know that a lot of the stuff on here is not going to get nominated for the Emmys. The Emmys feel so wide open this year. But, you know, new stuff like The Handmaid's Tale, which a lot of people do think is going to get into the Emmys. The... There's a lot of usual suspects. Fleabag, which a lot of people think are at least going to get like at least one Emmy nomination. Um, and then, but then there's stuff like also the achievement in news and information. So you have like instead of the like variety category, I think that it is uh, for the Emmys, you have stuff like John Oliver and Samantha B sharing the category with like Jake Tapper from CNN or Planet Earth on BBC America or yeah. the documentary Wiener on Showtime. So it just feels like. A little bit more loose, loose and fun, I think, over at the TCAs is what I'll say. I mean, I like seeing things like uh, like Pamela Adlon being nominated for Better Things, which I feel like is kind of a more under the radar series. Um, or like even Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think we t- when we talked about her last week, we said like Fleabag seen likely as a writing nominee and maybe not for her, but like maybe her being on this list will have people considering her for in their Emmy ballots. Well, that's that's the thing is like these categories the you know instead of best actor best actress blah, blah blah the category is individual achievement in drama individual achievement in comedy there's no example of this this year but sometimes it's just a writer you know in the category this year uh we have a lot of exactly what mike mike hogan was talking about a couple of weeks ago in terms of these multi-hyphenate nominees like phoebe waller-bridge or donald glover or aziz ansari these writers and creators and actors but you know, there's room for for sort of anyone who has contributed to the world of TV comedy and TV drama to be in there. And something else we should note that the TCAs do differently is they don't gender their categories. The MTV Awards got like a lot of kind of buzz this year for doing that, but the TCAs have never done that. So for these individual achievement in drama and individual achievement in comedy awards, like in the drama category, there's only one guy nominated. <laughs> And it's, wow. Sterling K- and it's Sterling K. Brown for This Is Us. I mean, that speaks to a narrative we've been talking about all year, which is how crowded the actress categories are going to be in the Emmys and the Golden Globes. But like Sterling K. Brown, not a white person, is the only, you know, there's no white males nominated for achievement in drama this Nor year. Nor in which comedy. I think is, yeah, which two is, men of color. So. Man, yeah, if you wanted a better sign that the era of the uh, the tortured white man on Prestige TV is over, uh, that's a pretty interesting symbol. I mean, I feel I feel like Justin Thoreau should have snuck in there somewhere, but, you know, we'll, 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 we'll leave it up uh, to them. But, yeah, so all of this is up here. Most of the categories are out. I'm interested to note, this is my first year in, in the whole thing, so I didn't know this, but there's two other categories that I voted on that have not been announced, which are... Whoa. Yeah, these, like... I mean, I can say what they are because they're always voted on, but I guess we don't announce the nominees. And what they are are these, like, heritage awards, like a Lifetime Achievement Award. So there's one for a person and one for a show, which huh. I voted on, but I guess we don't announce what the contenders are. And I don't know if that's true for the... 
the Oscars as well. Like when they hand out, you know, the, the Thalberg award, I'm sure that there are other contenders that we just never hear about. Right. We don't hear about the shortlist. Yeah. Is that right? No, I know. I mean, I think it would, yeah, it would be kind of weird to be like, you were considered for a lifetime achievement award, but we decided not to. So these awards aren't televised or anything, right? They're not. Uh, Kristen Chenoweth is hosting. It is a whole like full ceremony that happens in Beverly Hills in August. The thing to note, I think, about the TCAs is sort of if they are any kind of Emmy bellwether is that the nominations come out before the nomination window, just before the nomination window closes for the Emmys. And then the award ceremony is just happens just before the voting window closes for the Emmys. Yeah, it's primed to be potentially influential. And there has been definite correlations in the past. But w- what I would give the TCA's credit for, and, and this part of this is chalked up to the fact that there's a category like outstanding new program is the TCA's like you would expect a critical body, a TV critical body to, to like put together is often years ahead of what the Emmys decides to do. So like they'll recognize game of Thrones in its first season or the Americans in its first season. And then it'll take the Emmys like three or four years to like really get on board with those shows. So you know, the the thing that emerges this year might be the Emmy winner of three years from now. So mm. we'll see. So like I said at the beginning, uh, we're getting to the end of the period where people are uh, filling out their Emmys ballots for nominees. The nominees will be announced on July 14th. So we're sharing two of our final interviews with some contenders or hopeful contenders. Uh, first up, Richard, you talked to David Harbour, who not only because uh, was kind of the main grown-up star of Stranger Things, but really had a breakout moment at the SAG Awards earlier this year when he gave the speech on behalf of the whole cast. So, uh, So what did you guys talk about? Well, we talked about the kind of phenomenon of of the show and sort of, you know, uh, how you kind of plan for that or don't plan for it. And, and, you know, so that was interesting to hear him talk. You know, he's been around a a long time. He's kind of a journeyman actor who's now just kind of breaking big uh, with the show. So we talked about that. We talked about, you know, his character. He plays Jim Hopper, who's this sheriff who has this kind of arc, you know, throughout the first season where he sort of learns to live again, kind of. And then uh, we also talked about the SAG thing, which was really interesting and um, just getting his perspective on this kind of seismic moment, you know, Winona Ryder expressions and all. Well, in the midst of all this Emmy for your consideration, FYC business, we're, we're talking to a few people who are in that mix. One of them is sitting across me right now, David Harbour from Stranger Things. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I, I, I know this has been a pretty wild 2016 slash 2017, so I appreciate you taking the time to come to this weird labyrinth of tunnels and pills. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. It's yeah. Yeah. So I guess we want to start by going back to last summer when, yeah. you know, all of this really started to take off uh, with Stranger Things. Was it really just a year ago? I mean, doesn't... I, I know it feels like forever ago. It really does. It really does, right? It feels like it's become part of the cultural lexicon so quickly. So but, quickly. Uh, it was, yeah, July 15th of last year was when it dropped, yeah. Now, you know, I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot, but like in the lead up to it being released on Netflix, did you guys or did you personally have any sense of what this could become? I mean, did you feel it when you were on set? This kind of. No. I mean, I, I when I read the script, I thought it was really 
brilliant and it was something that i would have wanted to watch and then when we were shooting i think we were all kind of hunkered down in atlanta and i think we were all kind of scared and tired and you know we and there's always this thing with when projects when you think they're going to be really good when you read a really good script they they oftentimes turn out to be not as good as you imagine and so that's always the danger is getting your hopes up in that way so i didn't really have my hopes up and then in fact like before it came out I was wandering around New York City and there was like no advertising for it for like weeks lead up. And apparently this is one of the new models, sort of the way they approach their consumers is to do a certain marketing campaign that's just very much on their site. They don't really do ads and stuff for new shows. But I didn't think anybody was going to watch it. I mean, there's a lot of shows on Netflix, and a lot of movies that come out on Netflix that sort of just like, you know, they're there and they kind of go away. And we also were scared that we'd be the first show that Netflix didn't renew for a second season. We, we, we had all these fears about it being like unsuccessful. So when it came out and when it was very successful, uh, I was totally taken by surprise. And um, at the same time, like very gratified because it was, it was something that I, I, I'm very proud of, like, I'm very proud of what it's about. I'm very proud of the, the work that we all do in it. I'm very proud of the storytelling. And a lot of times you'll have something that'll come out that'll make a lot of money that you're not so proud of, or something that you're very proud of that goes nowhere. So this was like a weird confluence of the two where it was like, oh, I'm actually very proud of this thing, really happy to have it out there and really happy that people are watching it and like being affected by it. Yeah. Now, because you've been involved with various projects, whether they're film or television, that have been, you know, whether it's Black Mass or the newsroom that, you know, have all this kind of momentum behind them. And then for whatever reason, didn't quite click in the way that maybe people thought they would. Yeah. So at this point, like, how much expectation do you put into anything that you that you, you know, sign on to? I mean, because it, it must be kind of hard to have this sort of like rise of expectation. And then, you know, yeah, very little, to be yeah. honest. I mean, my whole as I go further and further, and it, it was like earlier in my career where I really started to learn that lesson pretty hard. I think it was um, sort of my biggest kind of disappointment in that realm was I did a movie called Revolutionary Road years ago, sure, which yeah. I remember like, you know, it was Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio and Sam Mendes and and it was a beautiful, based on a beautiful book. And, and you know, I think we made a good movie, but... It was just one of those things where at the time we thought it was going to be Citizen Kane. Right. And then when it came out, it like didn't get the response. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, kind of how it works. It doesn't really add up. It doesn't really line up in what you think it's going to be. You're really sort of just fishing. And so I guess uh, the further I've gone along, the more I realize that it's about, um, it's just about showing up and doing the work that you want to do and really having integrity around that and really putting something out there that you believe in and that you feel good about, which is a struggle sometimes as well, because often I'll get cynical about, you know, about that. And I'll be like, oh, it doesn't really matter. And so when, when Stranger Things came around, I did have this opportunity where I was like, no, no, this is a really good part. This is a really good series. This is a really good opportunity for me. I'm just going to work really hard and I'm going to try to create something very special. And if people respond to it, great. And if they don't, they don't. So it's that, it's that old adage. It's like you, you know, you show up and then you leave the result to whatever, like you don't, you know, you don't worry about the result as much because it's completely out of your control. And there is something where there are tons of things that are respected, that are well-liked and all this stuff, but there is this special quality, which is mysterious of like what makes something a hit, like where people just, you know, it somehow gets etched into their their souls and i 
there's no methodology for there's no reason for that it's just this weird alchemy of circumstance of time of everything yeah i mean i i'm i'd be curious you know because uh well i want to talk a little more about this in a second but like you, you know when when stranger things won the best ensemble award at sag awards you gave this kind of you know, stirring speech, and and you you found I think some sort of timely political allegory in the show to kind of relate to, you know, to what was going on in the world then and now with the the world what it is now. Do you have any anticipation for the second season having any further, you know, in that kind of relevance, or are you just trying to tell a good story? I mean, I think that we're just trying to tell a good story, but I also think that as good storytellers and especially like the duffers who i feel like are sensitive artists like we are a product of our times and a mirror of our times like we're sensitive and we feel things around us and so the only way you can create is through a response to that and you know even from the first trailer that we put on the super bowl like the world is turning upside down uh i think the great thing about the sci-fi genre is that you can make commentary but you can make it in a very you know sort of abstruse way, uh, which I, which I really like, you know, like I remember watching Star Trek, the next generation, and there'd be stuff with alien races and, and they'd be dealing with racism basically, but they're just dealing with an alien race. So for some reason it's more, it's subtler and it, and it, you're not as, uh, sort of reactionary to it. You can kind of let it filter in. And I think that's part of the thing that we're starting to explore, um, in Stranger Things, and we're starting to layer that thing, layer that in. I mean, I I want you to have a really good time when you watch stuff. I feel like some of the trouble is when people start to have messages, they forget that it's you're really there to have a good time. If the message gets through or if things get through and change you, that's great, but it's it's not at the expense of a good story. Yeah, and in particular with your character, um, I mean, I think that television more than movies, like a beloved television character is a great performance but also we have to really like the person and so i'm curious like when you or not like the person but be engaged in you know their sort of their character their personality when you were reading the script how much of of your character did you get to know i mean how many scripts did you have his whole arc kind of in front of you uh no the first thing i read was the pilot yeah but they also had something called a lookbook which mm -hmm. is a lot of things that like television pilots do now and they also had a fake trailer that they put together from old 80s movies right and so at that time it was based in a different city and it was uh, more coastal and the model that they had for him was a little bit of Roy Scheider and Jaws kind sure. of the chief and in the same way that uh, he hates the water and doesn't want to go in the water and ultimately has to go in the water to fight the shark uh, Hopper deals with hating kids and ultimately having to go into the depths of hell to save a child and so they sort of showed me all these clips and all these um, things and these descriptions about Hopper as these leading men from the late 70s and early 80s, which were guys that I grew up with. So I didn't really know his full arc at that point when I signed on to do it, but I knew I was kind of in good hands based on the writing of the pilot, the sophistication of even like there's little things that you notice. They're kind of like little secrets. And you can tell if his writer's good is like. Hopper wakes up in his trailer and you see that first image at the time we changed it to a child's drawing, but at the time it was a picture of him and his daughter. Mm -hmm. And you sort of know that this guy has had this tragedy and has lost this thing and now is a mess. He's on the couch, he's drunk. Blah, blah. And so the assumption would be to make him angry or sad, 
right, right. from that point forward. And the great thing is the next scene he has is the coffee and contemplation and the, like messing with his deputies and like making fun of stuff. And the sophistication of understanding that five years after a tragedy that you develop shtick and personality traits that are unique and, you know, strange to deal with some kind of tragedy as opposed to just being on the nose about what tragedy does to people was like, oh, I'm in good hands. These guys are yeah. not going to they're not going to be on the nose about stuff. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was their admiration for these characters of like Indiana Jones or, you know, Gene Hackman in French connection or like Nick Nolte and like everything. <laughs> that was like something where I was really eager to play these guys who I feel like back then were allowed to have a lot of this kind of what I call masculine charisma, mm -hmm. these kind of beaten down men who were angry and messed up and didn't act correctly, but ultimately, you know, were real sweethearts, sort of when you got down underneath it all, but would never admit to it. It's kind of a Western trope too, like a true grit sort of trope. I love that. I mean, there's, uh, I just love that trope. And if it's played honestly, I can watch it all day. Yeah. I mean, I think that something that really struck me about Stranger Things when I was watching it to review last summer was that it has this kind of, you know, kind of Amblin Entertainment kind of sheen to it. It has the sci-fi, it has the horror, but undercutting it is this, or not undercutting it, but sort of supporting it, supplementing it is this really simple sort of decency and humanity. And, and I'm, I'm curious, like, obviously a lot of that comes in the writing direction, but like, is that something you have to kind of carefully calibrate while you're playing the role or is it just something that sort of flows because the writing is good or the directing is good or i mean it's a little bit of both i was definitely uh, very conscious going into the process about what i was creating which i'm not always that way but then this i was because i was like i didn't know once we started shooting i knew where he was going to go in eight mm -hmm. so i was very conscious about sort of highlighting the things that were uh, you know not decent about him in the beginning even in the first scene with Joyce, when she goes, uh, you know, Lonnie, the kids think he dresses weird. And, and I'm like, you know, he dresses weird. And he's like, the kid think he's gay. And like, I'm like, is he? Like, you know, I mean, I think there's something about that where it's like, whoa, dude, like this kid is missing and you're going to like wonder if he's gay if you should go save him. Like those sorts of connections where I was like, no, let's highlight this. Or even the first scene with the kids where, you know, he, it could be played a lot differently. Like it could be played sweeter. It could be played gentler. But I was like, let's go really hard because I sort of want people to distance themselves from him so that they'll come back around. And that's one of the most satisfying things is that people don't like him in episodes one and two. I mean, I always like him, but but one of the great things about your lead characters, and I think it's something that people should do more of now, is you don't have to like them. You have to pay attention to them yeah. initially. You have to find them interesting to watch. But if you like them right off the bat, there's very little drama. Yeah, and that arc, I mean, I would say is one that we might see in a film. But because, you know, it's, it has a sort of beginning and, and end-ish. But now we have a season two coming up. So, right. so how do you, I mean, how do <laughs> yeah, you keep is... the character open enough or, or exactly. you know, like? Well, no, this is what, this was like the first thing when we were going to have another season. I was like, yeah, I, I really love this guy and I'd love to see where he goes. But one of the dangers is, okay, everybody loves the series. So just show up and say coffee and contemplation and just wander around and be silly and fight a monster and we're done. And we were all like, yeah, we're not interested in that. Like if we're going to do this, like we're going to take some risks and we're going to try to, you know, you can't like recreate season one. You have to take risks. And so one of those risks that I talked to the Duffers a lot about was um, 
in the first season, there was such a clear arc of like this guy who is obviously dead inside. Um, and you start to see him come back to life through his own pride, actually, in a weird, not through his own nobility. But then you realize that he does have this nobility and kind of this majesty in the end. And, and he breathes for the first time, I think, when he saves Will. Like, it's this first, like, shock of life. And so the interesting thing is to start season two is to go like, okay, so where is this guy now? And where do we want him to go now? So one of the things we talked about was he is, um, he has done something heroic, right? So he has become a hero. He has reawoken and people like him for that. Now there's other aspects that are going to be going on too. Like, you know, some people in the town know about this. Some people don't. He has a lot of stress in terms of managing the town. But one of the things that I was really interested in is the pitfalls and the traps and the fantasies of what it is to actually be a hero or to have the pressures of people's expectations on you or your own expectations on you and what that leads you to believe you can and can't do like so the journey is very different in season two but it's 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 a journey of deeper understanding of self where the first journey was sort of this rush of like kind of unveiling this is like a deeper journey of a deeper kind of subtler journey of what is my mind doing now, now that I've done this thing? And maybe I think um, I can I can bring back things that aren't able to be brought back. Or maybe I think I have somehow kind of superhuman strength and power. And is that a dangerous quality? Like, you know, I think it's something that people try to explore. Like, I think that Batman versus Superman, the idea that like Superman becomes yeah. a god or something. And we don't do it on that grand level. We do it on a much more... Uh, psychological subtle level but this idea of like heroism and how that's actually a danger as well with something where and i don't want to give too much away but it's an interesting little arc and it's very different than season one and i was really pleased about that so you're someone whose career i've sort of tracked you know um and you've had you know series and things come and go movies what's changed now i mean are the offers that much bigger are you you know offer only or are you you know like you know how, how does what's changed in that uh way? yes for anyone in the industry <laughs> listening i'm just offer only um no i uh i yeah th it's definitely changed yeah. i mean i think that um the great thing about it was it was an opportunity for me like i'd never really been given a leading role something where i could actually play an arc you know i've i've been in movies and television i've always sort of been supporting and i don't know that i've capitalized on that particular thing as well as when i have more room to actually explore an arc cuz i think you know we look to acting for different things. And I think some people look to acting because they want to see like great emotion expressed in certain things. And for me, like my acting has always been the greatest acting, I think is kind of a map for living. And so to see consequentially how things add up psychologically in a human being. And so if you don't have a kind of broader canvas, like of a leading role to play, it's harder to do that. And I think, so I think this just allowed me an opportunity to really flesh out and do what I, I do. And, and I think people really responded to it. And, um, so yeah, things have changed. I mean, I, uh, yeah, things have changed. Can like, you, can you talk about Hellboy at all? <laughs> I talk a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah. 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 So you're, you, you will be playing the titular. Hellboy, I will be playing correct? Hellboy. Yes. Wow. Hellboy. So how did that come about? Was that, well, that was something where, um, you know, the producers, uh, had called me a while ago and they had a script and they wanted to redo it and they sent it to me and it was just kind of like they, I guess, 
Mike Mignola, the uh, comic creator and and the producers had been watching Stranger Things and I guess they all sort of came to this conclusion that like, like upon watching it, I guess the producers called Mike and were like, what do you think about uh, David Harbour? And, and Mike was like, I was just watching Stranger Things. I think I was like, I was saying he should play. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they had had these movies that they had made back in 2003 and 2008 and they wanted to go in a different direction with this. So, it's a whole different thing. Like we're doing something. Neil Marshall is kind of a horror guy. Yeah. The descent. Yeah, exactly. The descent, which I love that horrifying. It's it's so great. But so it's a darker edged movie. Um, and what I really like is because look, these comic book movies are the mythos of our era. They are these canvases where, we get to tell broad-based stories in this time, whereas like in the 70s, it wasn't so much, but then now it really is the comic book movie age. And so of that world, this is a guy who, like I I hope we make a very different movie. Like I, I love the genre, but I want to see... I just, I want to see some more character complexity. And I feel like this guy is a really complicated dude. It's it's very cool, though. I'm excited about it. Cool. So before I let you go, I w- did want to ask about the SAG Awards, the speech again. Okay. So David gave this really great impassioned speech when, when you guys won and about, you know, it was political, but it was a, it was general. It was it was sort of optimistic about, you know, sort of change in the world and whatever. Was that planned or was that just like were you in the moment and you were like, fuck it, I'm going to go? And- <laughs> no, that was very planned. Okay. I mean, look, I have very complicated feelings about award shows in general. I I just have, yeah, have complicated, like we're already so celebrated in culture. The fact that people then like give us awards is kind of crazy. So I hate when like, I didn't want to get up there and just thank my agents and like, just be right. like, thank you. Thank you. And Thanks even to Kevin Hubane. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I see people do that and I find it charming, but I just, for me, I, I yeah. wanted to say something and to, and to say something about people and also about my fellow actors. Cause it was an award from my fellow actors. Mm-hmm. It was an award from, you know, the tens of thousands of members of uh, screen actors guild. And, um, so, and I also wanted to say something about acting in general. Uh, and I knew that, if I got up there without a speech, I would just like blubber and say thank you to my agent. So I did write a speech and I worked on it for about a week, just off and on, just like kind of honing it down. The weird thing is you only get 45 seconds, yeah, right? Yeah. And then, and I, I took, I think a minute 45, but I, uh, I, you can't say anything in 45. I mean, 45 no. seconds is so quick, <laughs> yeah. but I, um, I managed to get it down to like a minute 45, but it was definitely a planned thing. And I was like, I didn't expect us to win, but I was like, if we win, I have something I'm going to say. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I had the paper. I was like saying it. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely had it planned. So, you know, obviously the internet went kind of wild. There were memes with Renato's, you know, kind of like reaction. The pizza pizza (laughs) one is amazing. If if you haven't seen it, guys, please, maybe we'll tweet it out. Um, But like you had mentioned before we started recording that there was some negative reaction too. What what Mm. was that like? I mean, what were people saying? Well, I mean, I think the funny thing is we are in such a, a, you know, what is it? Bipartisan world or like just such a crazy, we're in such a crazy time with all this rage and things. Some of the conservative sort of websites kind of took things out of context and I get things edited together where at one point I did make a statement and this, this sort of upsets me is that things are taken out of context. Yeah. Like I made a statement sort of towards the end of the speech where I say, 
as we act in the continuing narrative of Stranger Things, we 1983 Midwesterners will repel bullies. We will fight monsters. We will get us alive. And at one point I say, and when we're met, I think it was when we're met with the hypocrisy and casual violence of certain institutions and individuals, we will, as per Chief Jim Hopper, punch some people in the face when they seek to destroy the meek, the disenfranchised, and the marginalized. I think it was. And, you know, some people edited it together and said, like, you know, David Harbour wants to punch Trump supporters in the face. Mm, (laughs) And like, (laughs) and like, that's not. And it's just it's just sad that we take things so out of context now and we have to politicize everything. In fact, you know, that comment was partially a joke and partially just a call to resistance for anyone who finds injustice anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I, you know. I, I think the whole front end of the speech was about um, compassion and was about sort of getting past our own narcissism toward a deeper empathy with our work. Yeah. Well, you know, if see, if Stranger Things season two wins anything, you've you've set a really high bar, high bar for yourself. <laughs> you've really screwed yourself. It's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. I know. Well, we hope to see you on stage again, uh, <laughs> David. Thank you so much for being with Thanks, us. Thanks, really man. My pleasure. So now we're going to hear my conversation with Zach Woods, who plays Jared on the HBO series Silicon Valley. And uh, basically, this was just a very selfish thing that I did where I thought Jared was the best character on the show forever. And I, uh, when we were doing this Anatomy of a Character series at VF.com, I was like, I'm just going to talk to everyone I can about Jared. Uh, so I got on the phone with Zach and kind of talked to him about how that character emerged. And if you go back and watch the Silicon Valley pilot, it's really interesting because you see him. He, he starts off as an assistant to Gavin Belson, who's kind of the uh, sort of the villain of the series. And he's just kind of this very generic, like... Silicon Valley suit kind of guy. And uh, he develops over the course of the series as this really strange character with this tragic backstory that kind of comes out in all these, um, you know, throwaway lines that uh, Zach Woods, because he's a veteran of UCB, improvised a lot of it, even though he doesn't really want to like take too much credit for it, which is really interesting. I also spoke to one of the showrunners of Silicon Valley, Alec Berg, who said that uh, Zach Woods is maybe the most like his character of anyone on the series, which I think is an interesting thing to uh, to think of as you listen to him kind of talk about the success he's had while trying not to brag about it. So I kind of wanted to start by just going back to the beginning. And I uh, I asked Mike Judge and Alex, Alex Berg these questions as well, but I haven't heard back from them. So I wanted to hear from you uh, who Jared was when you first uh, saw the script for the pilot or got the audition and w- what the description of the character was that made you feel like you got him or is totally different from the Jared we know now. It changed a lot. Initially, he was Gavin's henchman who defected to go join up with Richard, but he was sort of like, I remember the first in the pilot, they gave me this like suede bomber jacket, (laughs) which is, (laughs) which I feel like hopefully will give you some idea about how the character has changed. Like Jared would never wear a suede bomber jacket, but in the, in that pilot, he was like, I think he was supposed to be more kind of like what the salespeople ended up being in subsequent seasons, which is like, a little bit more polished, a little bit more capable, a little more canny, a little more soulless, maybe. Like, and almost then, like, a, like a mini Gavin, like an infiltrator in the... Uh, yeah, the exactly. Well, that was the question was he was going to be like the Benedict Arnold of, uh, of uh, Pied Piper. And it changed a little bit because I guess it was a combination of factors. After we got picked up, 
they changed it. So in the, uh, well, this is maybe more detailed than you want, but in the end of the pilot, initially, Jared leaves to join Pied Piper. Mm -hmm. But once the pilot got picked up, they re-edited it. So they made that happen in the second episode of season one. And in that episode, they've changed the writing a lot because my friend Carson Mel, who's this amazing writer and uh, director who wrote for the show in the second, uh, in the first season rather, knew me a little bit. And so he sort of wrote that a little bit more in whatever voice I think he thought would be appropriate. And I think the writers just wanted to make it a little more specific. So that's when they have the jokes about like, I look like a ghost or, <laughs> you know, stuff that's like a little more self-deprecating, a little more beta male And then for me, I just like, once the show is picked up, I really, I'm a little bit of a compulsive preparer. So I started just like trying to flesh him out in my own head and I was sort of thinking like based on that second script that he was much more of a, I mean, I've said this before, but basically I feel like it's a Pinocchio story where Richard is the blue fairy and like Jared was Gavin's puppet for a long time. And then the fairy shows up and is like, you can be a real boy. (laughs) And then, uh, and then he feels then like every subsequent season, he like discovers new dimensions to his humanity thanks to his involvement in Pied Piper like even in the previous season when he says all that shit to Dinesh about the chain you know and he's like there's a when Dinesh is wearing that chain and I'm ridiculing him Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember oh oh, yeah but uh, but there's a scene where he goes where Jared goes uh I'm I'm breaking balls like he can't (laughs) believe it like he's like he's breaking balls for the first time so for me this is the longest answer of all time but basically it went from being this sort of shrewd, possibly treacherous, glossy business guy to, in my head, like a puppet becoming a real boy and like being sort of struck dumb by his like mother love for this group of guys. I mean, is there a real life analog for you of Jared, either like an assistant or like that kind of person, you know, in Hollywood or in Silicon Valley? Like, do you see him in the world or do you think he's kind of a little bit off on his own plane? I mean, I see aspects of him in, like, my mom, myself. Like, I'm certainly not as deferential or, like, (laughs) good-hearted as Jared is. But I do feel like I sometimes, especially when I was younger, had a habit of being a little uh, self-abnegating a little bit. Like, there were situations where I would, like, disappear myself for in order to just, like, make the situation more functional or what in my view was more functional. So I sort of took that somewhat bad emotional habit of my own and then like really amplified it to pathological degrees. <laughs> and, and, and also stuff with like, yeah, my mom. And then another thing I, I always like have thought about is like really, really smart, really, really capable teenage girls. But since there's like a stigma against like, young women being assertive sometimes or being like owning their power. (laughs) Uh, I also thought he was a little bit like that, like, like the girl in the sixth grade classroom who's like maybe the smartest girl in the room, but is hesitant to speak up because she's been socialized not to or something. Yeah. Where it's like, Oh, I I have this great idea, but I don't know. Maybe it's stupid. 
Yeah, exactly. Like you have the solution, you like whisper the solution while people shout the wrong answer <laughs> over top of you. Yeah. How does improv like factor into kind of your, not just like the way that the scenes work, but kind of your ongoing development of this character and how you guys all interact with each other? Because you've got this big improv background. Like I know it, it's a big part of how all of these characters have developed. Yeah, that's, that's right. It has to do a lot with how the characters have developed, I think. I think, you know, the vast majority of the show is written. The writers are, it's the best written show I've ever been on. I think those writers are truly geniuses. And it's not the kind of thing where you're coming into work and feeling like, oh God, I've got to do a lot of like cosmetic improv on this script so that it doesn't, so it isn't ugly. It's the opposite. It's like, I hope if I improvise, it lives up to the standards established by what they've already written. But the way I, one of the ways in which I feel like it is super useful is, especially in those early seasons, it does, like you're asking how Jared developed as a character. I would improvise a ton in those early seasons. And I think from that, the, uh, the I said the authors, Jesus Christ, <laughs> the, the writers learned my voice and what I thought of the character. And then based on their scripts, I would learn what they thought of the character and what they were interested in. And so it's sort of like, without ever sitting down and having a conversation about it, you sort of have this ongoing dialogue about what's of most interest to you as an actor and what's of most interest to them as a writer. And uh, because they're so collaborative and flexible, it all gets incorporated or the parts that they like get incorporated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and, yeah. like things go viral, like, uh, like the, like TJ Miller insulting Stephen Toblowski, like for 10 minutes and just kind of going on. Mm-hmm. And on. But like, I imagine like there's improvs like that, but then there's just a lot of like much more like simple, like variations on a line that happen. I imagine that's more common. Yeah. I try to improvise a lot of like Jared's backstory. Like in my mm-hmm. head, he's had such a traumatic life. So I'll do a lot of that, like fleshing out his, uh, life and they've started putting that in I think sometimes you know another thing that improv is good for is like I think it's important we really adore each other the actors on the show and it keeps you like really loose and playful and even if they don't use a single improvised line from a scene if you're improvising a lot it, I think you can feel it when uh, my guess is you can feel it when you watch it that it's like people hanging out who legitimately like each other who are actually listening to each other and stuff yeah well, and especially when you're uh, like uh, the way that like Jared plays like the peacemaker in this household and kind of like using that energy of affection, even like be- like between Dinesh and Guilfoyle and trying to convince them that they're each other's best friends. Like that has to be oh, yeah. like an, an energy that you carry about you, even if the rest of them have to go back to squabbling on camera. It's a fascinating thing about acting. Like I remember the first movie I ever did. I asked this actor, Tom Hollander, it was on this movie called In the Loop. Oh, my God. And I asked In the this- Loop is like... A- like, like all-timer. It's amazing. Oh, cool. I'm so glad you like it, Kat. This is such a nice conversation <laughs> for me. <laughs> but the guy who plays, um, I believe the name is Simon, Tom Hollander, talks about, talked to me about, we were talking about acting stuff, and I asked him, do you ever find it difficult if in a script you're supposed to hate someone, but in real life you're like really good friends or you know, you're in love with somebody on set, but you're supposed to be ex-lovers or whatever. And he said, you know, more often than not, the opposite happens where your interpersonal relationship will conform to the contours of your fictional relationship. So if you're like, which is really interesting, like, so I found that it's like, it's, I think I would love those guys no matter what, even if I was playing a character who was antagonistic to them. 
but it makes it somehow like even easier because Jared's always such a, like I, I find myself being more Jared-y around those guys, even <laughs> off camera than I am in the rest of my life, because you just get in these, those, those dynamics are so well rehearsed after years of making a television show together that you do find yourself sort of in those patterns. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about in the loop actually, uh, because you know, sure. looking at your IMDb, it's like, it's the first like feature you have on your credits, which is a pretty amazing mm-hmm. way to start off. And from there, yeah. I mean, you, like you'd been at the UCB for a long time, which obviously like introduces you to a lot of comedians who are now doing amazing things. But I mean, it looks like this kind of smooth start where you start off in this Armando Yanucci movie and then you're just like off to the races. Did it feel like that in real life? Like did the, did your career start as smoothly as it seems? It's, it was interesting, like, I shot in the loop, and that was, like, one of the best experiences of my whole life. Like, I, they, they put us up in this beautiful old ho- railway hotel in London, and we lived in London for, you know, a month. And James Gandolfini, who was, like, the most supportive, like, beautiful person, was there and, like, so inclusive, and I was such a fan of his. And so the whole thing was just a dream. I used to wander around London literally crying because I felt so <laughs> grateful. Just the whole thing seemed so improbable and wonderful. So then I came back and I was like, what if Alison Jones, I remember having this daydream. I was like, what if Alison Jones, who's this uh, incredible casting director who cast like the office and parks and rec and freaks and geeks. But I was like, what if she saw it and then put me in things? And I remember having that daydream, but then a long, like about a year went by after I did In the Loop where I couldn't even get a a callback for an audition. And I remember going to the In the Loop premiere at Tribeca and they sent a black car and I couldn't afford like food. Like I was late (laughs) on my rent. I was like eating like a cheese sandwich every day. Like I was really hurting financially. And I remember they would send these like fancy cars and take you to these, like, you know, there was these press events. And I remember just being like, can I just take the subway and they'll give me the money for the car? Cause I really need the money. But then I went out to LA with like my last few dollars just to do like meetings and stuff. And I met with Allison Jones. And what was so weird, it's like my daydream came true. She literally said to me the first time we met, she was like, oh, you should come out here. I'll help you. She said, I'll help you. <laughs> and then she got me a job on the office. I didn't even have to audition. She gave, she like set it up. That's amazing. And then, and also I came out and I had no place to live. I didn't know like, you know, it was all pretty sudden because I got this job and I had to move. And she was like, oh, I have this empty condo if you want. You can, you know, I'll give you like a good price. And then so she like gave me my home and my career basically. (laughs) She's your blue fairy. She is. She's my (laughs) richest. Yeah. So I'll, I'll be forever indebted to her. So there was like a, again, the longest answer of all time, but basically like, in the loop was incredible, but then there's this year of like panic. There's this just like sandbar of freak out in between like in the loop and the office. But then after that, like Allison really helped me out. Is she how you got hooked up with Paul Feig too? Since you had kind of yep. standout small roles in his last three movies, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I auditioned for bridesmaids and I didn't get the part, but she had me, improvise or maybe he asked me to improvise and i think he he liked the stuff i did even though i wasn't right for that movie so now we've worked together in these like yeah i do like little parts in his movies and then i just wrote a movie that um he's gonna be 
producing, I think. So that's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you write a part for yourself in that at least? Yeah, I did. So yeah, I think you were, you were talking somewhere else about kind of transitioning into writing and it, it so writing is a pretty recent thing for you. Mm-hmm. So how, that surprises me because usually people come out of the UCB like with a lot of that writing experience and kind of do that alongside acting. I think it's too lonely for me. Like in the past, like when I tried to write by myself, I would get so lonely. And also when there's not another person in the room, the sort of choir of your self-doubt reaches like a shrieking volume, you know? Mm-hmm. But then I wrote this script with this guy, Brandon Gardner, who's a UCB New York guy who moved out here to Los Angeles. And that was much easier. Also, I think I just got less freaked out generally. I think it just was like too neurotic making for a long time. And I don't know, maybe I turned some small (laughs) corner in terms of mental health and was able to (laughs) (laughs) not be quite so nutty. Does having the same job on something like Silicon Valley for so long give you some of that stability? Because so much of acting is like going from one gig to the next. And when you've been on a show for a long time, that's also good. Like, it's not like you're kind of stuck in a dead end. Like, that has to kind of put your mind at ease in a way that that nothing else can. Yeah, these are really good questions. That's right. That's. (laughs) That's that's really true. That's that's exactly right. I think it gives you more courage and more confidence because you have time. A lot of acting is just getting used to new situations. Like I find like if like one of the hardest things is to guest star on a TV show because you're like by the time you've gotten used to the water temperature, you have you're getting out of the water. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think being able to splash around in the same pool for years definitely like you said like it gives you a chance to learn your strengths and learn your weaknesses. But then you also have like a safe place to, to address those weaknesses or try to expand your skill set or whatever. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Another forward looking thing that might probably be impossible for you to answer, but with TJ Miller not coming back for the next season, like, do you have any sense of what Silicon Valley is going to look like without him? Yeah. I mean, I think as the, I mean, obviously we'll all miss him a lot. And, um, I'm sure the audience will miss them too. But I think as the seasons have progressed, they've done a good job of like distributing the comedy pretty Mm -hmm. widely. You know, I think like even characters like Jin Yang or um, Lori, you know, who in the past have been like great, great flavor kind of on the side have gotten more and more like prominent. And, and so I think that the sort of, range of options in terms of story and comedy have expanded so i think the show will be fine but we'll miss him yeah yeah i mean the yeah. the way that it like it changes i mean you get like steven tobolowski who's around and then like then you can suddenly have like gavin belson on and then i was really kind of taken by surprise by that twist this season where it's like oh well, he's gonna be in the core gang and then he's just on a plane and disappearing like it, it really does have the yeah. ability to turn a corner in that way that not very many shows do i think they do a good job of that like you know how Game of Thrones, I, I don't watch it, but pe- people have told me that characters just like characters you love will just be killed unceremoniously, oh, yeah. like out of nowhere. I think in a very, in a much, much, much more mild way, Silicon Valley, they're good at like starting off in a direction that feels like, oh, this is what the season will be. And then jackknifing the show a little bit and yeah. going in a completely different direction. And I do think that keeps you on your toes as if you were in, you're not, you don't just sort of settle into the predictable like trajectory. How do you not watch Game of Thrones? It's like, it's like on right before, or right after you guys have the time. Cause I don't watch Silicon Valley either <laughs> because it makes me, because it makes me crazy to watch myself. I just, 
all I can think about is like, your face is strange. Don't act like that. (laughs) (laughs) Did you watch Veep like before and after you were on it? Yeah, I watched it before and after, but not during. That's so interesting. How about The Office? Like, could you watch like that when you weren't on? Nope. Oh my God. I watched like the first episode and I was like, never more, never again. <laughs> but Veep was like short, short lived enough that you could jump back in. Oh, well, I watched The Office before I was on it. Oh, okay. I just didn't watch it when I was on it. Okay. No, no. I, I, anytime I'm on a show, I make sure I see it because, yeah, that, that would be professionally irresponsible of me not to do. But, still but, now but, but no, I, involved. I, Right, because I was in it. But I, uh, I, I saw the first couple episodes because you can't get out of it. Like the first episodes of a show, you have to go to the premiere and do all these things. But <laughs> just now, cringe the entire time. Yeah, it was it was a very cringy experience. Like we just did a screening at Lucas Films for this season. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, everyone was in there watching except me. I was like sleeping underneath the like <laughs> whatever under like C three PO or <laughs> like I went and took a nap outside. <laughs> Were you always, at Skywalker I Ranch? I don't know. I think I'm confused about. We were at Industrial Light and Magic. Is okay, that different I, from I Skywalker? I think Ranch? those might be two different locations. That's still like very a, like geek dream come true. I don't know if that's your brand of geekdom, but that's cool. I saw the hook from Hook. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> the but, but eponymous sleeping, hook. But sleeping under C3PO is like whatever. <laughs> yeah weirdly this is gonna sound ter- terrible but like weirdly the thing i was most excited about was they had like an old editing station you know when they used to like cut film and mm-hmm. piece it together when it was like a tactile thing and that weirdly was the thing that caught my um i interest the most yeah yeah but we all took pictures under vigo the carpathian's portrait and stuff but but for me i don't know for some reason like the like boring editing station was the thing that got my juices going. I mean, those things are really insane looking when you think about how it's done now, but it, it sounds like uh, if, if you ever uh, wind up like directing yourself or anything, you won't be able to edit because you won't be able to watch yourself. No, I'll just do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> it's going to turn out so well. <laughs> Yeah. Like, you know, if you're like cleaning something disgusting and you're like, turn your face away and shut your eyes. And, like, <laughs> like if you're p- like picking a dead cockroach out of your bathtub or something, like it'll be like that. I'll like my hands will be on the keyboard, but <laughs> the rest of my body will be <laughs> contorting in the opposite direction. So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And please find us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com where we're talking about the Emmys a whole lot and, you know, Star Wars and everything else we talked about. Uh, you can also find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for achievement in Star Wars puns goes to Joanna Robinson. So that gives me new hope, I guess. 